The Akkad and Coca Report, episode number 86. Welcome to the Akkad and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. For today's episode, Dr. Coca will be interviewing Mr. John Chamberlain, who self-identifies as a recovering hospital CEO. Our guest has over 35 years of experience as a hospital and physician practice executive, but at some point in the recent past, he saw the light of free market medicine and is now leading Citizen Health, an organization that is dedicated to rebuilding healthcare for the next generation and working along with other organizations like Free to Care Coalition to achieve that goal. Before we get started, I want to remind you that you can support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or on your favorite podcast app. You can also help us by making a small, doni- a small donation to the show, which can give you access to the inner sanctum of the Akkad and Coca report. Details at akkadandcoca.com support. And now with today's episode. Okay, well, welcome to this most recent episode uh, of the Akkad and Coca report. Uh, today, we uh, have the pleasure of having uh, John Chamberlain. Uh, John, John is here uh, to talk about his uh, very interesting journey from being a hospital executive to the very interesting stuff that he's doing uh, right now. He's, um, so, John, tell me a little bit about um, um, where your uh, journey uh, started. Well, good afternoon, Anish, and thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. I look forward to it. Uh, my journey started uh, quite a while ago. I'm uh, 69 years old. My dad was a fifth-generation internist uh, specializing in diagnostic cardiology. Um, I had, uh, through high school, entertained the idea of going to medical school, certainly uh, encouraged to do that, not so much by my dad, but my family, and uh, made the decision. Um, shortly after my dad passed in 1968, uh, to not do that, but uh, did stay in uh, the field of medicine, uh, went and got an undergraduate degree in biology, and uh, worked in the industry uh, for about 13 years uh, on the product side, if you will, of healthcare. And uh, then after 13 years, went back and got my master's degree in health administration at Washington University School of Medicine. Uh, from that point forward, was in uh, healthcare administration for, well, gosh, 30-plus uh, years. And um, about five years ago, really got uh, somewhat discouraged, or had really started the process. It started earlier because I've always been, throughout my career, a very strong patient and physician advocate. And uh, I saw that uh, my desires in that area were Uh, certainly overcome by my corporate overlords, if you will, and uh, made the decision at that point to do something different. And that brought me to uh, what I've been doing for the last uh, really five years, or actually longer, even while I was still employed. And that is looking at alternative delivery models and uh, also how to make things better for all the folks involved in healthcare. That's patients, physicians, certainly nurses, uh, those that deliver care. So you, so you work, uh, so you, your job for, um, 
as an administrator, was working for a hospital uh, and you essentially were helping um, run physician practices. Is that correct? Well, actually both. I had general operations experience and um, uh, some of my career was spent running physician practices, actually have uh, done dual roles. Uh, probably one of my more interesting and gratifying uh, experiences was helping a group of physicians build a 78-bed cardiovascular orthopedic specialty hospital. This was, of course, prior to the Affordable Care Act, which outlawed physician-owned hospitals. But uh, it gave us a little more leeway and uh, latitude in how we design things and how we design the systems to work better for patients and certainly physicians. So I've done both, some concurrently, but um, I would say the majority of my time was spent in pure hospital operations administration. Did you, did you enjoy the job for some period of time? I did. I did, especially that part I just referred to. Um, being able to have a little more latitude and working closer with doctors um, who were not trying to run the hospital per se. They certainly relied on folks like myself that had the experience to do that. But to be able to work more closely with them and really get their input uh, specifically as related to not only care processes, but how they wanted their patients to be treated, uh, that was enjoyable. And uh, I did enjoy it for a number of years. It was exciting. Um, certainly, I, was, I came into the into the whole uh, industry, really on the hospital side, right at the time that uh, diagnosis-related groups were being introduced. So I got to watch that from the sidelines as I finished my master's degree, but then got thrown into the thick of it. And that was, that was also exciting to some degree, um, a challenge. But, uh, and I went through the period of, uh, there was a, a kind of a popular phase known as re-engineering where a hard, hard look was taken at hospital operations, uh, predominantly looking at, at cost control, but how to make processes work better. And then, of course, I was around for the, the whole quality improvement um, scenario uh, where worked some with uh, Don Berwick, Institute for Health Improvement, uh, worked with a number of community folks uh, as it related to, um, I guess you could say, business groups on health. How could we all work together to make healthcare better? Um, but in reality, the hard, cold facts of revenue, um, I, I guess, margin, all those things um, slowly but surely took over. And that's where I really started to become disillusioned, where we weren't able to do the things by we, I mean myself, my physician colleagues, and others that were responsible for delivering care weren't able to do the things uh, as I saw fit or as they saw fit to really take good care of patients, not only clinically, but financially. So was there, uh, was there something uh, specific that, that caused this um, inability to now take care of patients? Meaning when you started, uh, was it the case that, uh, you know, the, the goals weren't uh, competing, I guess? I, I guess at some point it came to be that uh, you felt like you couldn't do your job, and, you know, make money, I guess, for the hospital and for the doctors, as well as you know, do the right thing by patients is from right. is what I'm getting. So when did that, did that happen suddenly? Did that happen slowly? Or was that always the case and you just kind of woke up to it? Uh, I think it's probably a mixture of all three. It, it, I'm sure it happened over time. But as it became more of an obstacle uh, and more of um, 
a discouraging part of my job, I really started to say, what can I, what can I do about this? Working with my physician colleagues, uh, I, I was also uh, really in the thick of things when the chief medical officer position became uh, you know, pretty much a de rigueur. And before that, we really didn't have an administrative position. Um, and in some ways, that was very, very beneficial. Uh, certainly, some of my physician colleagues saw that individual as a sellout, perhaps. But it was a way to try to bridge things and to try to make um, those things that I desired and I felt that patients desired and certainly my physician colleagues desired. Uh, it did, for a while, make that somewhat easier. But in reality, I think this whole um, situation where I saw things going the wrong way probably happened over time. And um, it was probably brought home to me um, in my last official uh, hospital uh, employment position where I had been responsible for uh, establishing, designing, developing, and operating a, um, an urgent care center. And I live in Gulf Shores, Alabama, and we were uh, put this urgent care center very close to the beach. Yes, there are beaches in Alabama. And um, I saw on a routine basis where patients who were visiting uh, to go to the beach uh, would come in, would have, um, you know, a, an acute event, whether it was a stingray sting or not, not necessarily traumatic, but one of these things that they needed attention, um, we, and they didn't have insurance. So, you know, the, the uh, corporate folks said, you know, it's a $100 flat fee which is reasonable, uh, most people can do that. But then it became uh, a factor where not only do we want the $100 flat fee, but if we do any x-rays or anything extra, we want you to collect that before they leave. And I said, I'll be happy to do that as long as the um, beloved Epic system can provide me with that information before they leave, which never occurred. But at any rate, it was uh, at that point that I said, all right, we're now starting to really nitpick um, you know, so let's say the additional, the x-ray and whatever else might have been done, laceration, repair, what are we talking about? Maybe three or $400 worth of charges uh, all told. Um, it became uh, unrealistic to do that in the time frame. So uh, I was a bit of a rebel and said, $100 today, we can bill them. Uh, you're not going to have the information ready for me to collect that. And A, and B, they're probably not going to have it. So when it became a a big issue. I said, well, it's okay. This is the uh, Sentinel event. Uh, it's time. And that's when I decided to uh, part company with the system, if you will. So, so it was because the system wasn't allowing you to set up prices that were reasonable. Is that? I don't, no, I don't think it was reasonable. I think it was more of a timing. Now, they're rarely reasonable. Um, and if they don't have insurance, uh, you, you can be a little more, um, I guess, have a little bit wider appreciation. But I wasn't able to get charge information uh, from Epic, the Epic system uh, in a timely fashion. I'm in an urgent care center. These people are down here for vacation. You know, the treatment for a stingray sting is it's not expensive. There's typically no x-rays involved. But just, you know, so for a hundred bucks, I said, I'm good with that. But if we had last, as I said, a laceration repair or any kind of uh, casting or splinting going on, uh, there were going to be extra charges for DME, for whatever. And uh, the system wasn't able to 
get that charge information to my front office in time to tell the patient, okay, in addition to your $100 flat fee, it's going to be another $320 for what we did. So in essence, I let people go. Um, yeah. Go home, go back to the beach. We'll bill you. Well, that, that wasn't satisfactory because as you probably know, uh, a lot of times people don't pay their bill. So at any rate, it was a, a small bone of contention, but one nonetheless that I felt was, it was more principle involved than anything else. And um, this is a health system that makes an awful lot of money and they certainly weren't going to miss a few hundred dollars here and there. That's so, that's interesting. I mean, I mean, you're, you know, from a patient and a physician standpoint, we talk about the difficulty with, with getting charges and here you, here you are, you are the administration. You are the, I mean, but it sounds like it's all, it's almost like you're kind of held captive to the hospital or the, I don't even know what, what to say about it, but meaning why is it, why is it you as the senior executive of the hospital who's, you know, been working for a long time, how is it that you're not able to get a charge and post a charge? It's, it's kind of like the battle I had um, in other areas as a hospital CEO. I asked my IT department in several hospitals for years, I want one page. And if you have to do front and back, that's fine. I want one page on my desk every morning that shows me what happened yesterday. Clinically, financially, you know, not, it wasn't a, a really a arduous task or an arduous request, but I think it took about probably three hospitals before I could finally get an IT department to give me that information. It was, it, it was a snapshot for me to look at and see where we needed to focus efforts, what was going on with costs, what was going on with volume, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that's a big failing um, right now of EHRs in general. Yes, they produce great amounts of data and metrics, but who are they useful to? Um, certainly John, why, uh, why, why are they not, why, why, why aren't they able to generate that again? Like what, what's the barrier here? Well, I'm just saying, I presume they are yeah. now, but it was asking for a format. It's kind of like oh, asking see, Epic see, or, oh, see, see. or okay. whomever to do something that makes sense to you as a physician. I and see. it's in kind of lockstep. There's no, um, no, I guess, ad hoc reporting capability. Certainly, this was back several years ago before the EHRs got so sophisticated. Right, right, but right. right. I, I find them to be an impediment to care um, right. more as, as, as an adjunct. Yeah, I don't want to belabor the point, but but is is there a, was there a person that you could have spoken to at some point in urgent care that could have said, all right, these are the prices for somebody that doesn't have insurance? Yeah, and I talked to our finance folks, and I said, I want you to give me an approved list, uh, and I'll give you 20 items that we normally see people come in here for. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously with insurance, it's, it's easier because then you, you know, relay that information to the insurance company. When you're on a cash basis, yeah. people need to know up front, right. you know, what a price is. Now, Absolutely. I've been able to do that in a different urgent care setting. We had a, basically, we worked out a flat rate one number, uh, and it, at that point, it turned out to be $155 for everybody that came in there without insurance. That was the average cost of, let's say, an urgent care visit. This was a few years ago, plus one x-ray, plus one or two labs. So we just figured out a number. And I could never get through the, the miasma, if you will, 
of the administrative folks that I reported to to just give me either one number or 15 numbers that I can that I can know without having to go through the EHR to give this amount. I mean, it's, it's insane. <laughs> it sounds. Yeah, it's it sounds it sounds unbelievable. Um, you know, we we uh, I'm in Philadelphia, and we uh, had a uh, uh, we've had a number of hospitals over the years that have closed down. I mean, it sounds yeah. like Hahnemann's getting ready to. Yeah, exactly right. So you know, we have uh, you know, I forget now how many different academic hospitals in uh, in Philadelphia, but but yeah, so one of the one of the you know traditionally large academic uh, medical centers um, that has a medical school attached to it, 550 training residents uh, every year. Um, that's uh, that's shutting that's shutting down um, as of September. So, kind of sent shockwaves through the Philadelphia uh, community. Do you? I, I imagine it sent shockwaves to people that had uh, qualified for residency there too. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I can't imagine. It really, <laughs> heart goes out to all those folks in terms of what they're doing right now to scramble. Uh, no kidding. Given that they woke up to that news, but you know, and and but but Hahnemann is kind of has been one of many uh, uh hospitals that have closed down i mean I, I mean just in my short time in philadelphia the last 7 or 8 years uh there've been i think five or six hospitals that are that were you know open that are now shut down um do you think that this is something that is um is this, is this is this something that going to continue uh, and it sounds like if it's so unbelievably complex to run hospitals that even a senior administrator can't get costs can't do some of the things that you're doing it seems like uh, you know uh, the end the end is nigh for uh, for many hospital uh, systems i i think what you're seeing between um and there was just news within the last day or so about sanford health out in uh, south dakota acquiring Unity Point uh, Health System out of Iowa. I mean, that's a, an $11 billion consolidation. And uh, so I think you're certainly gonna see hospitals, more hospitals close. I think you're gonna see more hospitals become acquired and or merged. And the thing that I, I find disturbing about that is twofold. One, uh, particularly in the areas of single source community hospitals, particularly critical access hospitals, those are the most damaging. I was the CEO of a 49-bed critical access hospital in Northeast Texas, which was the only healthcare accessible for within 45 minutes. Um, we had an ER, you know, we had the basics, and that was the lifeblood of that community. And um, due to a personal issue, I left that hospital as CEO to come to the coast to, to actually help my wife's mom, who was seriously ill. And within a year or so after my leaving, the owners of that hospital, which was another not-for-profit system, at the end of their five-year deal, closed that hospital, just purely financial. Um, they were out of the deal. Uh, they were out from under the, the onus of that deal, and they just closed it. I mean, they didn't even try to keep emergency setting or outpatient clinics. They just shuttered it. And that's a travesty. Um, you know, 45 minutes to some people, and particularly in metropolitan areas, that's kind of a normal commute, but not for people that live in a community of 2000 and did not have any physicians or hospital services or any services, uh, especially in a, in a critical situation as in a cardiac event. That's, that's so, untenable. So John, can you explain to me why it is these hospitals seem like it, it does seem like the smaller hospitals seem to be financially 
non-viable. Why, 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 why is that? I think a lot of it has to do with reimbursement. Um, certainly some of that has to do with volume. And as you probably are aware, Medicare, for instance, and, and typically in the smaller hospitals in the, in the smaller communities, that's their primary source of revenue, whether it's swing beds or acute care or rehab or what have you. Um, and Medicare reimburses on a regional basis. Uh, they look now with the case of critical access hospitals, they are cost-based. So that's a rarity in and of itself. So in essence, in a nutshell, a cost-based reimbursement says, you send us whatever it costs you to provide the care and we give you a 10% bump over that. Uh, the majority of hospitals are not reimbursed that way. They're reimbursed through diagnosis-related groups and the outpatient um, mechanisms. But I think the majority of them close because of reimbursement and volume issues. And that's why I think these acquisitions by larger, aggressive, avaricious health systems are bad because they're going after, I think, the, the cherries in the, in the pie of the system they're looking at. And what's going to happen is they're going to keep the ones that are financially successful and they're going to shutter the other ones or turn them into an outpatient center or physician offices or what have you. But um, I think I think the majority of it's due to, to reimbursement issues. And um, hospitals that have the predominance of their uh, reimbursement coming from Medicare have to out, you know, balance that with more insured patients. And that's also part of the problem in these smaller communities. Um, they don't have a a large employer who provides insurance uh, for their folks. It may be an agrarian community where uh, people don't have access to insurance. Um, and I'm not saying insurance is good because I don't think it is. Uh, in some settings, certainly catastrophic it is. But um, I, I think that that's part of that's really part of the problem. Well, it's interesting because, well, we, we talk a lot about um, changing the cost structure um, in medicine, meaning um, there are some, uh, there are a lot of folks that are advocating in one way or the other for lower prices. So, you know, whether it is you're a market person who thinks that increased competition will get, uh, will get us to lower prices for the consumer, or whether you're a uh, big government single payer type person, and not just single payer, but setting the pay, <laughs> in single payer in some type of, you know, Medicare for all scenario where, you know, uh, so either way, we're looking forward to a future where reimbursement is going to be lower than what it is now. Um, so how, 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 do, how do hospitals then go about surviving in a landscape where they have to make uh, much less than what they're making now? Well, I think that that part of the problem, and I go back to insurance again, um, growing up, um, we didn't use insurance. Um, my family didn't use insurance for the majority of our care. Uh, hospitalization, yes. Um, not even surgeries, you know, minor surgeries were, of course, at that time, I'm that old. You were hospitalized for most anything, uh, tonsilloid, uh, tonsillectomy, adenoidectomy, et cetera. Um, but I think in reality, as, as the insurance industry has uh, evolved over the last 50 or 60 years, uh, they've added a lot of um, baggage uh, to the cost of care. The cost of health care, the actual cost of care, is not nearly as high as it ends up being 
on your bill. Um, and I think so much of that is from what I call third party rent seekers, um, PBMs, GPOs, insurance companies, health systems, top heavy uh, administrative suites. Uh, and a lot of that is justified by health systems, these top heavy administrative suites by saying, well, we've got all these insurance contracts, we've got all these rules and regulations. That's true. So why not drop all that stuff for routine care, um, focus more? And that the, the industry has, has responded by moving so many things to outpatient settings, which is good. That's a lower cost setting typically. But I think they're going to have to really take another hard look at, in order to keep our cancer program, our cardiovascular program, orthopedic program all functioning, and to keep the hospital alive, we're going to have to look at other places um, to cut costs and to be in order to be able to support those um, bellwether programs, if you will. And a lot of hospitals aren't really willing to do that. I think another big problem uh, in in that whole situation is this concept of facility fees, where hospitals use facility fees, which are additional cost tacked on to procedures because, they, um, because they're done in a hospital setting. And I know that CMS uh, put into play effective the first of this year, they removed the facility fee offset uh, for uh, evaluation and management codes for physician office visits but they have not done that for procedures. So I think once that occurs, you're gonna see hospitals start shedding physician practices like wildfire because there's no longer any, I mean, most hospitals don't make money on the physician practice itself. They make money on the procedures and the referrals that that, that office sends to the hospital. So I think that's another area that they could certainly look at. Now, they've got vested costs, they've got you know, linear accelerators, they've got huge ORs, they've got robotic surgery, they've got all these kind of bells and whistles that make sense in the current environment, but all of a sudden they may not. And uh, it's going to be a hard decision. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> so, if they, so if you got a call from, uh, from someone down uh, here in Philadelphia and said, hey, John, we want, you to, we want you to turn Hahnemann around, would you be able to do it? I would, but my first response would be... <laughs> No, thank you. <laughs> I'd be glad to do it, but I'm not interested. Could I do it? Yes, but I'm really not interested. I'm, I'm too old for that stuff anymore. So tell me, what, what um, are you doing now? Uh, you know, you said you about five years ago. It's been about five years since you've left to... Uh, yes, uh, yeah, I left in uh, 2014. So, yeah, so what, um, what are these greener the pastures? That, yeah. One of, one of the things that, that drew me away was the emergence of a... Um, as I said earlier, uh, alternative delivery models. And one of the things that interested me at about the time, and it's been around a little bit longer, but there's a, an alternative delivery model for primary care called direct primary care. It's not concierge medicine. That's been around probably for 20, 25 or 30 years, but direct primary care has about been around for about 15, 16, maybe 18 years. And uh, that model is um, a subscription model and you probably know this, but it's basically a, an employer on behalf of an individual or an individual pays a set fee per month and they get a prescribed set of services for that fee. And the fee is typically for, you know, um, a 40 to 45 year old person, less than a hundred dollars a month. 
they get access to that primary care doctor 24-7, 365, um, and a, a set list of services. So it would include unlimited office visits, same day, next day office visits, laceration repair, um, uh, cerumen removal, uh, incision and drainage, blah, 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 a whole laundry list. Um, that's, that's incredible. That's $1,200 a year for probably 85% of what the average person's going to need in healthcare. Now, of course, the question then comes, well, what happens if I, you know, in that last visit I had, I found out that I have cancer? Well, you know, direct primary care is not going to cover that. So that's kind of where the conundrum is. Um, and, and that conundrum is that catastrophic only policies are no longer available. They were outlawed by the Affordable Care Act. And so what do you do? Well, I think there was method behind the madness uh, to do to outlaw catastrophic coverage. And that was to force people into the exchanges and into the Affordable Care Act. So, um, but that hasn't uh, dulled my desire to keep doing this. And we're starting to see a lot of improvement um, certainly the association health plans and short-term limited duration plans that catch a lot of heat um, in the public arena, if you will, for being junk plans. Well, they're not all junk plans. Um, and I think the association health plans have a lot of promise. Then on the other hand, there are the health sharing uh, ministry plans, uh, which are again exempted uh, from that regulation by the ACA. They don't have to comply. Um, those are seeing some uh, good level of interest. And I'm just hoping that at some point um, in the near future, catastrophic only plans will be allowed to come back because that's really where insurance, I think, benefits the majority of people. You know, if you need an MRI uh, and you have, um, you're on an exchange plan, your deductible is $7,000. Why, you know, why would you go to a hospital and have it done for $2,800 when you could go down the street to a freestanding imaging center and have that study done for 300 bucks? I've told, told people that and they go, well, in that case, I get $2,800 put towards my deductible. It's still $2,800 out of your pocket. Um, so at any rate, I, I, I think that that has kept me going. Uh, I have a passion for this. Um, I think we will start to see these things get resolved. Um, you know, hopefully not, uh, and you alluded to earlier, I think the a next uh, question or topic is gonna be government involvement. Hopefully it's not resolved by more government involvement. Uh, yes, that's one way to set prices, um, to conscript physicians, in my personal opinion. Uh, you, either, you either agree to abide by single payer employment or you can go do something else. And um, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. So I, and it's not, it's just not the way I think we can be more successful, most successful. So you've already mentioned one of the, one of the knocks on, uh, uh, you know, on direct primary care is that uh, it doesn't do everything, which is right. somewhat, you know, a little, a little tiresome because I don't think there's any one solution that's necessarily going to solve every no. single problem. And it, you know? it's never been, it's never been put, put forward like that. It doesn't solve everything, right, but right. It, you know, is, I, go ahead. Is it the case that, you know, is it the case then though, that, you know, you have mostly the, you know, you know, the, the chronically mildly ill or the healthy 
that end up doing these type of DPC plans. And then, you know, you kind of have a, a very high risk group that exists that isn't able to get insurance. You know, what, what are the, what are the solutions uh, for those folks? Cause that's obviously that's the major thing to, to, to figure out. And it's almost like DPC, the DPC folks, Need an need an answer for that, even though that's not oh. what they may necessarily do, because because they don't have an answer for for folks like that. Then then you know uh, certainly the politicians are going to make a lot of uh, hey and 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 it's a real you know it's a real concern of patients. I don't want to minimize that. So oh no, not at all. Yeah. And, and I mean I I'm uh, I'm on Medicare. I have a PCP. I'm a Medicare Advantage uh, customer of Humana. But today, if I had a, a direct primary care position in my neighborhood, I would pay the $70, $80 a month extra just to have that relationship. And I think that's where it's important, but you can't, I cannot agree with you more. You cannot forget that 15% of the population or 20% that already has uh, acute chronic, whether they're mildly chronic or, you know, I mean, acute issues, whether it's cancer or cardiovascular disease, the, the question is exactly right. What do you do for those folks that can't afford insurance? You know, I think one thing that I keep hearing being put out there is a high risk schools uh, by state. So uh, the health sharing plan concept is a great plan, um, a great concept because it's essentially a group of people that are putting, you know, a certain amount of money per month into this big pot, and it's a national pot in most instances, and it's doled out to people, and I don't mean that to be a negative, but it's it's given to people that have a need that meet the requirements of the um, health sharing uh, plan, and they get their expenses covered. Right. Um, right. That's a that's a great model. The problem with that model is, and I, I'm a proponent for it, but there is a problem. They're not regulated by state departments of insurance, they're therefore not required to pay everything that's presented to them. Um, I guess you could say neither is insurance, but insurance typically does, has more regulation via the state departments of insurance that they better pay, and they're required by federal law to use 80 or 85% of their premium dollar to you know, move it to medical care. Um, but I, I think, again, there has got to be a better solution for that the easiest solution is to bring back catastrophic insurance, major medical. That gives people the options. The thing that I don't like about more government involvement, more government involvement equals less choice. So you can't choose. Now, if every doctor in the country goes under a single payer plan, then I guess you do. You may have choice. <laughs> the doctor doesn't have much choice, but um, I, I think more government typically equals less choice. And, as it turns out, the more insurance involvement, the less choice. Narrow networks, that's, a, that's an insurance game. It has nothing to do for patients. Um, it's an insurance game and a hospital game. We want this narrow network. We want to move more of our patients to your hospital. And if, if we do that, you get better reimbursement. What about the patient? What's in it for the patient? Do they get a better premium? Um, I, I don't know. Right, right. And so your, you know, your endeavor is to kind of create a, some type of a market, if you will, that allows uh, people who actually deliver healthcare to connect with patients. Is that That's correct? That's correct. Yeah. And so in answer to your earlier suggestion, 
I'm a market side guy, not a government side guy. Um, I think there are a couple of extant um, marketplace experiments, if you will, for lack of a better term, or betas. One is in Kansas City area. It's called Sesame. Um, it is an online marketplace where people can go and look for healthcare services. Now, they're not going to go look for knee replacement necessarily at this point, uh, but they are going to go look for MRIs, CTs, lab studies, office visits, physical therapy, any kind of health service you can imagine. People are actually able, going to be able to uh, and are able in that small market to shop for these services. And providers, I hate that word, uh, vendors of health services, including physicians, go on one side of the marketplace and say, hey, I'm offering, it's not like, you know, a fire sale, but, you know, I will be happy to do, let's say I'm a dentist, I'll be happy to do a spring cleaning for you, including bite wing x-rays, cleaning uh, for 69 bucks. It's almost like Groupon, almost. Right, right. Uh, but that concept, uh, now certainly there are going to be, and, and some of the work that we're doing is to work with, um, whether it's physicians, surgeons, surgical center of, surgery center of Oklahoma being a prime example. Um, if we have an employer that comes in and says, hey, I have 1,000 employees, and last year we had uh, 60 total knee replacements. I'd like to buy 60 total knee replacements or put a bid out for 60 total knee replacements for this year. Anybody interested? Now on the physician side or the surgery center side, you may get three people come back and go, I'll do those uh, 60 knees for $15,000 a piece. And then the concept is that the employer goes, great, best price I've heard. Here, I'll pay for those 60 at 15,000 right now. And at the end of this whole deal, at the end of the year, if I've only used 50, can I get my money back? And they'll say, well, sure, we'll just turn around and sell those 10. We'll keep that price and we can sell those 10 to somebody else. Theoretically, that's, that's a reasonable deal. Um, so it's not just MRIs and teeth cleanings, but it, it can be considerable uh, things that are, that are available out there. Well, and, Part of this concept right now is I know that Sesame is on a cash basis. So you call, you get a, you basically say, I want to take advantage of your $200 CT scan. Here's my credit card. What we're doing in this endeavor that I've been involved with for a little over the last year is we're looking to introduce cryptocurrency and we already have a cryptocurrency um, ourselves um, to utilize cryptocurrency as an additional discount to that service. So in essence, if you have a $350 MRI and you can do 10% of that with cryptocurrency, so it reduces it. Okay. It's only 35 bucks, but the concept is that, you know, this cryptocurrency can be used as a discount and eventually we think it can be used in, in payment in total. Um, so how do you get this cryptocurrency? Well, we, we have a, a, a way to do that. And the, the organization I'm talking about is Citizen Health, and we have an app uh, out on both um, app stores called Humantive, and it basically tracks your being healthy, and you earn this cryptocurrency. You, you actually can earn it uh, for being healthy. Uh, obviously, the hidden benefit is there that you're healthier. Um, so at, at the end game for us, I think, 
is that we want to get to this um, a similar health sharing arrangement, but doing it on a peer-to-peer -peer basis as opposed to having to have religious affiliations um, and other criteria that meet uh, the ACA exemption. That's probably the end goal for us. And the, end go uh, the, the whole reason for our being is to rebuild healthcare, which is no small order, and do it without insurance. And um, needless to say, we already have built-in enemies to that, namely insurance. Uh, but we're somewhat low-key, below the radar, uh, maybe not after this, but <laughs> at, at any rate. Um, That's interesting. So, the, the explain to me um, the, 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 your, the way you get, this is a new cryptocurrency, not one that currently exists. That's right. It's not a Bitcoin or... Okay, there's, so it's there's some type of... There's probably a handful of crypto uh, instruments out there. Right. Um, and to be perfectly honest with you, our cryptocurrency doesn't have any value assigned to it right now. So, right. you know, it's it's there. Um, we have both a security token and a utility token, and this is all this uh, crypto lingo. And I say crypto or digital asset because you say Bitcoin and people go flying away and pulling their hair out. and Oh, my God, not Bitcoin, um, which it's living up to its reputation lately, this roller coaster of value. Um, but this whole thing comes back to using the blockchain uh, for doing these transactions. And of course, blockchain is new in the States. In Europe, it's much more um, advanced and is being used. Uh, actually, interestingly enough, blockchain is being used by a number of cities in the U.S. to do uh, utility payments. They're testing the water with the, with the, method, with the uh, methodology. Mm -hmm. But the beauty of the blockchain is you, you use what's called a smart contract. And so the employer that wants these 60 knees does a smart contract, builds all the parameters in, um, and the transaction occurs instantaneously. He's got 60 knees in his, in his, to his credit, and the, the uh, provider, the physician or the surgery center, has 60 times 15 grand in the bank. Um, so I, I think that's, and the security of the blockchain is also extremely important. Um, you know, it's, it's similar to, I guess you could say, credit card transactions. Uh, but it happens instantaneously. It happens automatically um, via these smart contracts. So it's a fascinating technology. Is the advantage, I mean, we'll have to, I don't want to do, take too much of an aside here uh, for you to explain uh, all these things that I have no idea about, but is the advantage of, of cryptocurrency uh, is that there isn't a, the same transaction cost that is associated with credit cards and banking? It's typically, typically smaller, 1% uh, as okay. opposed to 3 to 5%. Okay. So that can add up. Um, the other, I think the, that's an advantage certainly, but I think the biggest advantage to me is security. Security. And, well, why uh, you know, isn't, why aren't our credit cards not secure because of you, you, you lose the number. I mean, the numbers can be, you know, yeah, whatever identity. They can be hacked. And, okay. and, and I'm just saying that the blockchain typically is, is nothing in my opinion, um, is absolute. So I, could I say here today that the blockchain is hundred percent secure? I couldn't say that, but I think it's more secure because we hear every day about um, what LabCorp and Quest, you know, their billing agency getting hacked. And that billing agency is bankrupt now, went out of business. Right, right. Put about 20 million people's information out on the dark web. And right. so I, I think that's a concern. Um, right. But uh, I, I think that, that, you know, I'd be silly to say that crypto is going to be 100%. I wouldn't do it even if I had it. 
I wouldn't put a hundred percent out there. Right. I'd want to say, all right, I'll give you 20% of this value in, in crypto. Right. 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 Um, so I see. Well, very interesting. I mean, they, but, but the basic I, I concept is, sorry, the basic concept is creating a, uh, creating, creating a peer to peer network, uh, uh, that, that hopefully will connect up, uh, doctors and, and, and patients. It, it, it's, it's free of, um, any uh, third-party middlemen, uh, and right. of course the prices are transparent, and, right? And 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 there's this very interesting uh, wrinkle uh, in terms of uh, uh, blockchain and 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 cryptocurrency in terms of how, how one goes about uh, the transactions. Is that and just is that to give good? you an idea yeah. of 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 what what today's technology allows us to do? Our blockchain yeah. expert is a a PhD. Uh, Boat person in Manchester, England. He is our blockchain guy. Okay. And um, the other the other members of our group. I'm in Alabama. Our CEOs in Mississippi. Our COO is in Phoenix, and our software guys in Portland. We're oh. all over the place. But we meet once a week on Zoom, and um, great technology. Couldn't do it without it. <laughs> Wonderful, and this is and this is gonna this is gonna be launched fairly soon, I hear. Uh, yeah, the uh, the marketplace is called Metoplex, M E D O P L E X. Okay, and um, it will be launched on July the fourth. Uh, we're calling it Healthcare Freedom, and it's going to certainly be in beta at that point. We have probably half a dozen um, providers, physicians, imaging services, etc., that have agreed to launch with us. And it's it's going to be in a beta mode, just like Sesame was. There are um, there's at least a couple of others that I know that are coming online. It'd be ridiculous to think we were the only one, but there's an awful lot of folks in this country that need healthcare. So we would be greedy and unrealistic to think that everybody's going to jump on board with us. But we we think it's a it's really exciting yeah. uh, to be able to, to find those services and find them at a reasonable cost and at a cost that you know up front and to be able to transact that instantaneously is uh, it's pretty fascinating and this is a this is a national uh, network uh, it, yes it, it it is uh in in theory right now our imaging provider is national with over a thousand locations um very interesting for another discussion perhaps but um Ex exceedingly bright person in charge of this and the model is brilliant uh, but they went from 300 locations last year to close to a thousand today these are providers or these are doctors these are, or these are locations to get imaging service oh look okay all right yeah. wonderful okay great yeah I, I, and just for our knowledge our knowledge or certainly my knowledge um, do you if you're a physician that uh, is hooked into third parties like me, you know, I, mm -hmm. Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera. Am right. I able to get on this marketplace as well to offer services or, or is Certainly. that not? No, that's, I mean, if you'll accept cash. Yeah. But, but, but uh, what, but can I, am I allowed to put cash rates on there that are different than my rates that I charge for? Uh, that's, that's for you and your attorney to figure out. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think Medicare certainly, as long as you're not putting a cash rate that's lower than Medicare, you're, you'd be okay. I'm sure there's some other detailed interminglings that you'd need to check yeah. out, but we would have no problem with anybody putting services out there. Um, you know, if you go lower than Medicare, you're going to get dinged pretty hard. Right. Uh, they call it fraud and abuse. 
<laughs> and uh, you don't want to do that. But right. no, we would have, I mean, if you're willing to accept cash for services, and honestly, I think even if you are, you know, in a third party situation, and you depend on insurance for the majority of your income, you obviously have to be careful. But you also, I'm sure, have folks that you see or would like yes. to see that you can't. Uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a people right. come to you all the time that say, can I see you for, you know, a, a, a cash price for a visit? And yeah. again, that's something you'll have to look at personally. But I think it would be wonderful for everybody to have access to that, that kind of uh, possibility. Yeah, so the way the way I do it that I, that I think uh, is keeping me out of jail. I, I hope uh, Simo Verma is not watching this podcast. <laughs> is that you know we have a, we have a fee schedule. You know we have a fee schedule right. that is is set you know is set by by me and right. uh, and essentially when a patient comes who's uninsured, I mean I, I want to take care of people um, and I say look um, we'll 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 work something out. This is the charged this is the charged amount, but you know obviously. If you can't pay the charged amount, we obviously have to work something out, and so you know we essentially adjust adjust down for right. folks that uh, um, you know that 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 have that are in need and can't pay the right. charged amount. So that's basically what we do. But uh, but in, but but I guess yeah, the only thing that makes me nervous is like, well, I can't have two different fee schedules, or I, it doesn't it doesn't feel like I can have different fee schedules. So I don't go about publicizing. You know, it's it's different from individual to individual, right? This is how the marketplace right. used to work. Right. When, you go to, right. when you when you go to a bazaar in India, <laughs> there's yeah. no, there's no <laughs> there's no set price, and so uh, correct. It's what you can haggle. Yeah, yeah. So that that's my that, that's the only thing that, that 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 makes me wonder. It's like I wonder. I guess maybe what I'd have to do is make sure my fee schedule would be the same. Right. The At least initially, you could put your fee schedule out on the marketplace, again, as long as you're in compliance with, you know, not being below what you get from Medicare, from Medicare right. you're not charging them any less than you do Medicare. I, again, I see absolutely no reason why you couldn't do that. And at least what you're doing is you're saying to people that you may not have in your practice now that want to come see you or don't even know about you, perhaps you put that out on the marketplace and they go, Oh, wow, I can go see Dr. Coca for, X amount. That's great. I've been wanting to get in to see him, but I, you know, I don't have insurance. I don't know that he would see me, but now right. you're telling people you will see him right. or right. your colleagues. Um, right. right. I mean, the whole, the whole point of this is to make sure that people get access to care outside right. of the ER. Um, you know, we're, where yeah. a lot of people go, unfortunately, uh, inappropriately, yeah. uh, at a reasonable rate. Right. And it may be that that one event that they've had that, once they want to come see you, you can determine in one, maybe two visits that it's nothing serious and you can refer back to a primary care physician or what have you or follow them. But um, I think that's a huge problem with, with what's happened to care today is that people don't go see the doctor, even primary care, because they, they can't afford it. They don't go see the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, sounds deductible. It's a copay that they can't afford. And that's, that's terrible. Right. So tell me, you know, as we'll we'll wind we'll wind up by having you tell us um, a little bit about what you think about uh, um, uh, where what the government's role is in uh, uh, much of this. Um, what, what do you what do you think of um, you know the last decade in terms of what the government has done? Has what the government done in the last decade been helpful, hurtful, or neutral? Um, I'm going to come down on the side of 
hurtful, probably not intended to be. I think everybody wants to think our government wants to do the right thing. Um, unfortunately, it usually doesn't turn out that way. And I think a uh, classic example, um, you know, the Affordable Care Act, it's truly not affordable for a lot of people. It's great for the people that are subsidized, but for the people that can't afford insurance on the open market to be forced into a, an exchange plan, for instance, with a $350 a month premium and a $7,000 deductible per individual, that's untenable. That's people, I don't know anybody that can do that or that will do that. So um, I think what I'm hearing about the future, it makes me less comfortable with what government wants to do. My, my vision of what government should do is provide backup, if you will, or backstop for people that are truly needy, um, that, are, that meet certain criteria. Right now, our Medicaid um, you know, expansion, all that, I, I think, is, is sort of a joke. Uh, eligibility requirements, all those things, in order to expand Medicaid, they had to lower their eligibility requirements. And so you're getting people that really don't qualify that are enrolled. And as a result of that, it's not just the federal government, but state governments are going bust because of this Medicaid expansion. So I think government needs to be there to back up. Um, what I'd like to see is them enable legislation to reauthorize catastrophic only insurance, to um, through the IRS, allow for direct primary care and similar arrangements to be uh, qualified expenses under HRAs and HSAs. And um, also to, uh, again, be the backstop, be the stop loss for these catastrophic, I mean, major catastrophic cases. I don't, and the, I think the, the illusion that government is doing Medicare is wrong. It's not. Government, the federal government doesn't process claims. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina processes 80% of Medicare claims. The uh, Medicaid, Medicare managed care folks, Humana, Cigna, et cetera, they do all their claims processing. The government doesn't do that. They just send the government a bill um, or they get paid up front. Uh, whatever that portion of my Medicare, um, you know, contribution goes to my managed care company. So, uh, but I, I think the government can still be beneficial, but not in the way they're headed. And I, I will say this, I think that what I've seen in the last, um, even the last week with the executive order coming out about price transparency um, and lowering cost, the Senate Health Committee that's got the bill um, awaiting uh, being put on the floor about lowering health costs, uh, about drug pricing, about PBMs and GPOs. That's where the government can be beneficial, I think, in, in, in analyzing, realizing, and enforcing, uh, or in, in some cases, doing away with legislation, like the legislation that enabled the kickbacks, and I'm not afraid to use that term, the kickbacks for PBMs and GPOs, they're legally allowed to get kickbacks. By federal legislation, that needs to go away. And we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars that are spent that have no value to the patient um, because it's all going into the pockets of the PBMs. So I think that's where government, and don't get me wrong, government has been reasonably successful in fraud and abuse processes, 
um, the OIG for Medicare, you know, they've had some successes. And I think but they need to focus their effort on not providing care or claiming to provide care, but to making sure that those that do uh, can do it effectively and efficiently. Right. So from a, yeah, from a big picture standpoint, you know, uh, it seems like one end of the political, political spectrum is very, very interested in, in taking care of the populace, meaning, you know, it, it's a very great, it's a great political, it's great political theater to talk about, um, you know, having you walk into some government uh, run center or any a center that's paid for the government somehow and you get your mammogram and it's it, you know you walk out with no cost without having to worry about paying for things right and i think um uh, yeah i, I think that's going to be a very <laughs> that, that that's the hard sell because the moment that you tell 50 um, percent or maybe more of the population that um you know you're going to have to worry about the cost of this um you know, they get, they get cold feet. And, um, I think, I, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's somewhat of a second order thing. It requires some second order thinking, right. Which seems hard to do. It seems hard to get people to get to, um, because there's this, there's this very strong idea, which I understand, which kind of says that, Hey, if it's my health, um, someone else should just be taking care of it. I don't want to have to deal with any of the cost of it. So the same type of shopping that goes on goes goes on around iPhones around computers around whatever that the healthcare should be impervious from that and to be honest you know i think the republicans and the democrats there's a large number of both of those folks that feel that way so um i think it's going to be a it's going to be a, a tough road but there's been some recent as you're as you're alluding to there's there's some some recent positive news for the direct primary care folks because one of the big barriers to direct primary, uh, one of the big, I don't know, barriers, right? Word? I, I think so, an obstacle, if you will, was that you, have, you had to have a bells and whistle insurance plan where you're paying $300, $400 a month for insurance that you were mandated to buy. And then on top of that, if you wanted to have a relationship with a physician like you're talking about where you paid $100 a month to that mm-hmm. physician, um, and it covered a large number of things and it was super convenient and you had the, you know, they can, they'll come to your house sometimes they'll be there at 5 30 PM, et cetera. And that, and that's a relatively low cost affair, meaning it's for, you know, less than what you pay Comcast per month. You basically right. have a physician who is kind of dedicated to you. Um, uh, that, 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 that lived outside of the current insurance exchanges and the plans. And so the, the big push that's been there, you know, for some time now has been to somehow incorporate what you're paying already in terms of premiums and have that be applied to what you can pay physicians. So, right. you know, the, the easiest thing then becomes these health savings accounts. The health savings accounts are where um, there's a certain amount of dollars uh, that are used. And the whole idea initially when these things were set up was that you'd make patients these kind of, uh, shoppers for healthcare. And, uh, you know, if the patient had some skin in the game, they maybe won't be big time users of health, healthcare. And when they heard that, Hey, you're going to have to pay you know, a thousand dollars out of your HSA for a CAT scan, either a, you don't get it or B you, you look around for, you know, a better, a better deal. And, uh, and, you know, so the idea would be to use those HSA accounts to find physicians 
to, to to provide all these services. And then one of the one of the things that's wonderful about DPC physicians, I think, that doesn't get enough play, and is just kind of not mentioned by any of the policy elite folks, is that they are there to help a consumer shop. It's kind of right. Absolutely, you know, consumers shopping for healthcare on their own. I mean, it's 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 not like going in and looking for an iPhone. And by the way, even when you go in to look for a phone, a smartphone, at Best Buy, you have some person there who is kind of right coaching you. They may, yeah. There's a lot of variability, and some of them, some may be right. very bad, others <laughs> may be very good. But but you know, you need some help uh, a lot of times when you go shopping for these things. And so certainly, uh, that's underappreciated to a massive extent. And in, in this, it, it is. And I I think the the DPC folks, and there's the DPC summits going on right now in Chicago. There's yeah probably 300 or so DPC docs. They're a and I've been around a lot of them for a number of years and they are a really gregarious, genuine right. bunch of folks. They have each other's back. They have yeah. their patients' backs. Yeah. You know, there's all this talk uh, out there now about, well, DPC will never go anywhere because they can't scale it. Yeah. Well, you know what? Not everything needs to be scaled. Right. You know, the one thing that DPC docs do not want, pure DPC docs, is they don't want a third party involved. Right. So what does scaling usually involve? A third party, whether it's right. a VC, whether it's a venture capitalist or a private equity firm coming in saying, you can't scale without all these millions of dollars and we're here to give that to you. And all of a sudden the focus changes from right. taking care of my patients to the ROI. Right. So, right. Yeah. And, and I think that the, the big, the big thing that a lot of folks don't understand is that, is that for, you know, it has, there has been no clarification on whether or not you could use your, the dollars in your health savings accounts to pay physicians directly. And that, sure. that, that has been, it is clarified under 213, 213 D of the IRS code. Right. But part of the legislation, the EDO that was just issued right. is to fix that. Right. And to have the IRS allow for HSAs to be used for these subscription models. Right. Which is which, why the executive order is such a, is such a you know, big deal. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And of course, you know, um, the Joint Hospital Association, Catholic Hospitals, AHA, Federation, all the hospital guys have already come out against the, um, the Senate bill, the health committee bill. They've already come out against that. And you know, they're drawing their, they're loading up their guns for this executive order. We're going to see a lot of, litigation come because it threatens you know basically yeah. threatens their pocket absolutely and this whole price transparency thing is how can you shop for something if you don't have an idea what the true cost is and right. so this order that went into effect in january all the hospitals have to put their charge masters out you know right. in machine readable form well right. big deal right the right. hospital that i had my gallbladder surgery at last summer my charges were seventy six thousand dollars Right. not counting physicians. Right. What did Medicare pay them? 12 grand. Right. Right. But their charge master price was 76 grand. That's right. absurd. Right. Uh, I mean, right. at any rate, you can't shop if you don't have an idea what the price is. Right. 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 No, absolutely correct. Well, John, this has been, this has been great. Thank you uh, so much for uh, spending an hour of your time with us on a, on a weekend. Absolutely. Look forward to, uh, what you're doing. And, uh, we definitely have to, you know, you have a very deep and, uh, you know, you, you use a lot of terms casu casually and you clearly have an incredibly deep knowledge base about this. And we're going to have to definitely bring you back, uh, so you can discuss. Love that. to. And it's a, a distinct pleasure getting to meet you and see yeah. you personally. We've had interesting, uh, <laughs> interactions, yes. we, uh, Twitter exchanges and tate tates but, um, at any rate, it's been a pleasure and thank you for the opportunity to sit with you for a while this afternoon.
All right. Thanks again. Alrighty. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.